We live in a world, uh, at least in this country, I think it's true all around the world, that is uh, coming apart at the seams. And everybody's look, or people look to different, to different things for relief, right? Those different things they look to are really their gods. So if you're talking about economics, people are looking to economics because they think money and all that's going to save or you know, change our situation. Or we can focus on the climate. And I'm not saying that we should not be concerned about money. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about the climate. We should be disturbed by the fire that's going on in, in the Amazon rainforest. Yes, those things, you know, we should be praying about that. That's, those things aren't good. Um, but yet... I don't look to the climate to save to save me, and and that climate climate control and all that stuff has become a god that people worship. We should be responsible, but yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't look to the to the environment to save us. It's not going to. Um, it's not God. So we need to be concerned about these things, but we need to make sure that we don't turn them into gods. Some people turn into some people turn how they look into gods, right? So people are concerned about, uh, you know, I know a young lady that spends two hours getting ready for school, you know, putting makeup on her face, and, and um, it's like, wow, you know, you look good anyway. Why do you got to do that? But that's it's the image, right? My image. Got to have the right image, and. Um, all of those things are reflections of idolatry. Now, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with a lady fixing her face and doing that. But I'm not saying don't do that. I'm, I'm saying don't turn your image into the God you worship. And you can easily do that. I think all of you ladies are beautiful. You really are. These at different points in your life, that's all. The young ladies are beautiful. I love them. They're great. You're all beautiful. I love you. You're all, and you're all beautiful in different ways, right? But my wife, and now I can honestly say this, my wife is the eldest lady in this, well, next to my mother. My, but my mother's not here. But my mother, even at 98, she still is pretty, right? When she gets her hair fixed up, I'll go in the room and I'll see her and i say, Mom, you look really great. You know, um, so yes, she looks good. My wife is beautiful. She's had eight children, Right? Eight children, and she's still, I think, anyway, she's slim and looks nice, and her hair's beautiful, it's all gray. I love it. I mean, there's not... See, you're, so there's nothing wrong with the appreciation of beauty. God gave us beautiful things. It's the worship of the beauty that is wrong. It's when we look to those things to deliver us from whatever it is we're struggling with because they become false gods. Well, the Lord describes these false gods in Isaiah 46 and 47. He contrasts them with himself. um, And he's been doing this all the way through Isaiah. So this morning what I want to do is I want to take you through just Isaiah 46 and 47 and point out uh, some of the details of the text. And then I want to draw your attention to to two details that we need to give some thought to as Christian people. So first thing I want you to notice about God as we go through the text, look at what he says. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Those are false gods of, of the Chaldeans. Bell is probably all over the Middle East at that time. Um, and what is, how, how does he describe them? He says here in 46 uh, verse 1, he says, 
their idols are on beasts and livestock. I mean, you carry uh, th- these things. You carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Um, they stoop and they bow down together. They cannot save the burden. In fact, those gods themselves go into captivity. So in one culture would capture the other god, they'd take their gods off, right? Because they defeated them. And so God says, uh, listen, uh, Israel, um, I want you to understand this. I have cared for you since you were born. Um, I carried you before you were born. What God is saying is that He gave birth to them. It was it was from Him that from his womb that's the way it's described in the Hebrew text it's hard to translate that's why they translate it this way but the idea is that God carried them it was like God was their mother God carried Israel in a womb he's the one that gave them birth and that's what they need to understand you know you build gods that you carry around but I'm the one who carried you. And I'm the one who carried you from the time you were in the womb. I'm the one who gave you life. He says, and even to your old age. Notice the emphasis. I am He. Look how many times He says I. Even to your old age. I am He. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and save. Completely opposite of the God's uh, the Chaldeans. They had to carry their gods on oxen or on their shoulders, but God is the one who carried His his people. So therefore He asked them a question in verse 5, To whom then will you liken me and make me, make, and make me equal? Uh, who will you compare me to? Um, it's interesting. It's, it's, I don't know if it's a play on words because I'm not... I'm not um, I'm not uh, a scholar, but what I can tell you is this, um, that the Hebrew word uh, mashal is the word for proverb. Okay? But it's also a verb. The verb form mashal is used here, who will you compare me, to whom will you compare me, or with whom will you compare me. And the noun form mashal is a proverb. So it's like, um, what's a proverb like? A proverb is a comparison. Right? Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain uh, from her is better better than from silver, gold, and profit and on. She is more precious, more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. There's nothing. See, that's wisdom that God is talking about. You get wisdom, you got everything. So who are you going to compare God to? That's what God says to Israel. You know, almost proverbial-like. To whom, with whom can you compare me? Nothing. The closest you ever get is the Proverbs. Because the Proverbs are really, when you read them, um, and some of the statements in there lead you to believe that God is the one that's, that, that is wisdom. Well, we know in the New Testament who's Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Right? 
So he goes on and talks about the folly of idolatry, and we've looked at this before. Uh, they lift, uh, they lift to their shoulders. That is the gods they have. They carry it. Uh, they set it in its place, and there it stands. I mean, get this picture, right? There's, there's statues, and they carry them, and they put them in their place. And what do they? What does this? What do they do? Nothing. They just stand there. They can't see. They can't talk. They can't deliver. They can't do anything. The only reason they got from point A to point B is because you got them on your sho- carried them on a, on a something on your shoulders, and you took them and you set them down. And what do they do when they get to that point B? They don't do anything. They just stand there. That's all they can ever do. They cannot move from its place. If if somebody cries out to it and says, "Oh, Bell, oh, please deliver," nothing happens. The closest that I can get to this, um, and uh, I remember it from my youth, is that on certain feast days, they would uh, take a statue of the Virgin Mary and put it on a flat thing. At, at our, our parish was Mount Carmel. They would put it on something and men would carry that statue and they'd go around the around the streets carrying it was a feast day and they'd carry around they put the statue back up well what did the statue do then nothing nothing the knights of columbus carry a statue of mary around to places that they got an airplane and they fly the statue of mary around they go to people's homes they go to parishes and they put the statue up my cousin had this statue put in her house uh, when they brought it to that part of denver and um so she said she thought she saw the virgin mary crying you know um and uh, so, you know, what can you say about that? Uh, nothing. People think they see a lot of things. But what I can say is that it's, it's stone and it's idolatry. And it's nothing other than idolatry. Mm-hmm. I had a professor in seminary, John Davis. He was an archaeologist. And I, I wanted to go on an archaeological dig with him. And he said, yeah, you can come. And he had a, the summer and I could go with him. And I didn't get to go. I really wanted to go. But he was flying back on an airplane and he was sitting next to a Roman Catholic priest and they were having this discussion about, you know, statues. And he said, and John Davis said, well, you know, when you pray, you're praying to that statue. You're praying to it. And the priest said, oh, no, no, no. We're not praying to the statue. We're praying to the reality behind the statue. So they had this discussion. They landed in Rome and the priest says, let me take you, you know, let me give you a little tour. So they went and had this tour. And on that day, they happened to be doing some some working in this place and there was a group of people they were praying before the statue and they were praying right and all of a sudden for some reason somebody hit the statue it fell over and it broke and all the people who prayed they got up and left so Dr. Davis says so they weren't praying to the statue huh? <laughs> if they were praying to the reality behind the statue they would have stayed but they didn't well that's the folly of Idolatry. It, um, it's just um, it's foolishness, and yet we we all people succumb to that. You know, they have uh, they have the Hindu god. I forget which one was was actually giving milk to people. Now, how did that happen? I don't know. Maybe there was somebody behind the statue pour milk into it, make it come out. Maybe it was really happening. I don't deny that those kinds of things happen. I think it's foolish to say it didn't happen. I think those things do happen to deceive people, to, get, to cause them even more blindness. 
Why do people do that? Because it's just like St. Augustine said, and I can't quote him exactly, but we have this we have this vacuum in our heart and it longs to be filled. And so we turn to anything in creation, but the only one who can fill that void is the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who can. And so people do that because they've been created in the image of God. Romans chapter 1, all over again. They've been created in the image of God. They turn and worship the creature rather than the Creator. Why? Because they don't like the Creator. They hate Him. They are God-haters and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they hate the God who created them. Why? Because they are separated from Him. They are sinners. However you want to say it, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And the only thing they're going to do is suppress the truth. That's what idolaters do. But God keeps calling them. And He tells His people, He says, listen, remember this, and I I want you to stand firm. That's what He says in uh, chapter 46, verse 8. Stand firm. Recall to mind your your transgressors. Uh, Recall to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. And how is it that He's not like other gods or other gods are not like Him? Because He declares, He speaks, He gives His Word which states or gives us the truth about the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, My counsel will stand. I will accomplish My purpose. This God says something. God does something. He calls a bird of prey from the east, a man of My counsel from a far country. He's speaking about Cyrus. And I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And then there's this... There's this It looks like an editorial comment, but it sounds like the people are saying, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. It just stands out in the middle of all that. So God then declares in chapter 47 His judgment upon the empire of Babylon. He says they're pompous and arrogant. Now notice what they say. Notice what these Chaldeans say in their hearts. They say in their heart, I am. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like God. He just got done saying, I am. I am and there is no one besides me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now therefore you lover of pleasures, you sit, they sit securely. They say, who say in, in, in your heart, these people, I am and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow nor uh, the loss of children. So here's God's judgment. Oh, yes, you will. Yes, you will. I'm going to wipe out your future. That's when he talks about wiping out the children. What's he doing? He's wiping out their future. What are we doing when we abort a million babies a year. There are 38 million babies a year, I think, aborted in the world. It's a huge numbers. 
What are people doing? They're destroying their future. That's what we're doing here. We're destroying our future. The only ones who don't do that are Roman Catholics. That's good. Well, sometimes they do. And Muslims. And conservative Christians. We're the only ones not doing that. Can't keep up with a million babies a year. He says, these two things shall come to you in a moment. Uh, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. And why? Well, because you felt secure in your wickedness and you said, no one sees me. That's what people think. Your wisdom and knowledge led you astray and you say in your heart, look, look, look again, I am and there is none besides me. What are they saying? What is, what is, what is God saying through Isaiah? You, you claim for yourself to be God. I'm God, but you're claiming, you're claiming a rivalry with me. I'm God. He says, therefore, disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not sit, will not be able, uh, you will not be able to atone. You won't be able to, you won't be able to atone for your sin. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. And what he says in verse, uh, um, uh, looks like verse 15 of chapter 47. This stands out like a sore thumb. There is no one to save you. It just jumps right out of the passage at us. There is no one to save you. You say in your arrogance that you are God. You act like God. You think you control everything. And you don't. And you can't even save yourself. So there's no one to save you. No one to save you. That's God's work to those who trust in false gods. There is no one to save you. Well, I just wanted to go through the passage and bring those little details out. But I want to draw... a couple of ideas from the text for us. There's a book that's been written called um, oh I forget Deceptive Witness or something like that Christian Man and addressing the question how can the church best witness to the world around us? How can we best witness to the world around us? Because we don't do a very good job. When we tell somebody about Christ it generally comes across or at least in their eyes as well that's just what you believe I believe something else there's no, there's no kind of conviction uh, in I wouldn't say of any of you but there's no kind of conviction in, peop- in Christians lives that, 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 that challenge uh, the world around us that we serve a transcendent God that we are not like him that we need him and that people outside of him can't save themselves. For some reason, we can't, we don't communicate that. And we could, we could talk about why, and we could have books of evangelism. I got six books on evangelism. I wanted to share them. I wanted to go through and teach, and teach all of us about evangelism. Great, that's fine. But how can we, it's not, dis, it's, it's called a disruptive witness. How do we offer a disruptive witness to our world? Well, I'm not sure. But there are two things that I want to bring up from the text that I think 
give us at least some direction. And the first one comes from verse 8 of chapter 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I want to stop there. What's he talking about? Remember the things of old. I believe he's talking about the Exodus. And he's calling the people of Israel to remember their their redemption from the, the Egyptians. He's calling them to remember that. How did they keep that memory alive in the nation? They kept it alive by observing, as God said, the Old Testament sacrificial system. It reminded them when they celebrated Passover that God had passed over them and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians. It reminded them that he delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. So Passover is a very important thing. And even today, among Jews and even Messianic Jews, even and they do, they celebrate Passover. They keep it like a Seder. Like I'm going to have Dan Feinmark do the Seder service for us next Good Friday. We're going to do a Seder service because you did it before. You'll love it. He's a great teacher. He really is. Daniel's a great teacher. And he, he'll tell us all about the Seder service, how the Jews keep Passover. It's fascinating. But what it does is it reminds the people that they've been delivered from bondage. The idea for them, which they seem to maybe have missed, was that they were delivered from the bondage of sin. That didn't seem to catch hold too much. And Passover wasn't celebrated all the time like it should be in the Old Testament. But by the New Testament times, it became legalistic. Passover. What else? Pentecost, that was first fruits. They celebrated first fruits. Then they had the feast of ingathering at the end. And that was when they gathered in the what is that, the last fruits? I don't know, first fruits, last fruits. But it was it was it was a, a time of joy because God had given them food and everything that they needed to to live. But it was a time when the people reflected on the fact that God had provided for all of their needs. So they had these feasts set up um, that God set up. God instituted them. And what angered him was not that they had the feast, but that they kept them legalistically and wrong, wrongly. They would, they would go worship Baal, and they'd come and worship, they'd do the Passover. Well, you can't do that. You can't worship a false god and then come and, you know, it'd be like us saying, okay, I'm going to go down to the Mormon tabernacle for the morning service, and I'll be here in the afternoon. You know, wait a minute, stop, hold on. You can't do that. I mean, if you went to a Roman Catholic Mass, I'd say, well, maybe you shouldn't do that, but at least they believe in God the way that we do, right? At least they believe that. I wouldn't be as frightened, but if you went to a morning church, I'd be terrified. And if you said, well, yeah, I'm going down there for the morning service, they have one at 9.30 and I come to you later in the day, that would be horrible. And that would be like what Israel did. They worship a false god, they go have Passover. So God was upset about that, and the book of Isaiah chapter 1 brings that out. Well, how do we remember our redemption? Well, there are two things that we do. The Lord's Supper and baptism. 
Now this is what I'm going to tell you. Those of you who have been baptized as children, you say, well, you know, I don't remember when it happened. You know, I don't... I, you know, it's like, I, I don't... You know, I don't remember somebody pouring water over me. You know? um, but that's not what you're supposed to think about. What are you supposed to think about when you think about your baptism? What are you supposed to think about? What it symbolizes, what it represents. And what does it represent? That you've been buried with Christ and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. You're to remember that. And you're to remember that when we have a baptism, you're supposed to recall your own baptism and remember that this is, this is, what, this is what it says to me, that I've been buried with Christ, that I, I died with Him and I've been raised, and also that I've been united to the church. The Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ, so we're all one, one body. So when we have a baptism, you should remember that. Yes. But you know what? When we have the Lord's Supper, you should remember your baptism too. You know why? Because the Lord's Supper represents that you've been that you died and you were buried and you were raised again with Christ too. Both of them represent the same thing, the same reality, the same truth. And when you take this, you take it with sincerity. You take you take the Lord's Supper and you you recall. We I think sometimes I go too fast through stuff because I got this. I got my my clock up here and I look at the time right and and um. And it's true, I shouldn't talk so much. But, on the other hand, we should do more contemplation. And we're not, com- our culture's not, are you comfortable with contemplation? Can you sit in a room by yourself, not in any music, no distractions, and just think about, think about God? Can you do that? You know, most people can't. Most people are not comfortable sitting by themselves all alone in a room with, you know, whether it's dark or light, it doesn't matter, but being alone and then just thinking about, you know, what about my relationship with the Lord? You know, God, you know, I've been failing here and here, but thank you for this. Do, we, do you do that? When we have the Lord's Supper, do you pause for just a moment and say, my life is hidden with Christ and God. And that when I take this bread and this wine... That's what I think about. I think about that reality. So that when I leave here, I don't leave here the same person that I was when I came. Because I've been dwelling upon the truth of who I am in Christ. And now when I go out into this world, I want to go out as someone who is a Christian, whose, whose life reflects the glory of Christ. And, and you, know, that, you think about those words and you say, what does that even mean? but you walk as Jesus walked. Not because you're trying to save yourself, but because you're saved. You see that? You get it? So, one of the ways that we have a disruptive witness is by really taking seriously the Lord's Supper. And I want to say this, because some people say, well, you know, it becomes old hat, is passed the bread around, then the wine goes around. Whose fault is that? That's our fault. It's not the fault of the supper. Think about this. What's the one commandment Jesus gave to the disciples regarding worship? We talked about this a little bit this morning. What's the one commandment Jesus gave about worship? Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, 
I mean, we get the we get commandments from Paul, who's that's the word of God too. He says, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So it's not that we don't. But we go back to Jesus. He only gave us. He only he said, listen, do this in remembrance of me. So when we do this, what are we thinking about? What are we just going through our mind? Are we thinking, oh, I wish this would get over because I'm tired and I want to go home? Well, sometimes I think that. <laughs> sometimes we struggle, don't we? We all struggle. It all becomes like old hat. Oops. That's not a bell. I wasn't ringing. Okay. I remember those. Anyway, so when you think about the Lord's Supper, you know, remember what it represents. Your identification, your union with Christ. And we go from here, remember, that's what you are. You are a Christ man. A Christ person. We've been recreated now in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer mankind. We're Christ kind. So we go out and that's what we reflect in our lives. And that's a disruptive witness because people get uncomfortable with that. Secondly, God says in in verse 10 of chapter 46, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey, I think that's Cyrus, the man of my counsel from a far country. As we think about that, I think about the parable of the kingdom. Remember? The Lord of the land gave gave some talents to this one that one gave so many five ten here one there and then where did he go I think if I remember right he went to a far country and then he returned from that far country I think for us that we need to remember that our hope is in Christ who is now as we might say in a parabolic way He's in a far country. But He's coming back. And the Word of God directs us to Him. And so a disruptive witness is is our hope. Not in what this world can give us. Not in what the government can give us. Not in what we may have in world wars. Not in any of that. Our hope is not in that. Our hope is not in whether we become socialist or not socialist. Our hope is not there. Our hope is in Christ. Yes, we may suffer. We may die. But when we die, we die in hope, do we not? Do we really believe the Scripture that says that we are the Lord's, whether we live or we die, we belong to Him? Do we really believe the Scripture that says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord? Can we join with Paul who says, I I endure all sufferings for the sake of Christ's church. I'll do anything, whatever it takes. For the sake of God's elect, I'll go out to the ends of the world. I'll do it. I'll do it no matter how much I suffer. I'll do it. Why? Because my hope is not in this world. My hope is in Jesus Christ. Is your hope in Jesus Christ today? Is that your hope? Because if it's not, you're hopeless. The government will not save you. Medicine will not save you. 
I don't want to have my hip replaced. Too bad. <laughs> That's life. The doctor's not going to save me. Doctor can help me walk a little longer. But only Christ is my hope. I don't care if I live till I'm 75 and die. It doesn't matter. I only hope I can help take care of my wife. But my wife is in the Lord's hands. Is, he, is she not? Amen. I don't have a lot of money. Even if my mother dies, I don't have a lot of money to leave for my poor wife. But I'm not the one... Listen, I can do all that I can do, right? I, I, can, I could save and invest and do all this stuff and try to provide for her when I pass. Okay? I could do that. But when I breathe my last breath... I want to breathe it like Boyd Kiefer did. He is risen. That was Boyd Kiefer's last words. And that's what I want. Because that's my hope. Is that your hope? I pray that it is. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we want to be a witness to our world. We want to be a witness to the people around us. And there are many ways that we can do that. And, uh, but one of the ways is that when we gather for worship, we truly worship You. We don't accommodate ourselves to the, the, the world's ways. That doesn't mean that we can't sing contemporary songs or have a guitar. Now, that doesn't mean any of that. It's that we focus on you, that the words that we sing in praise to you are really words that praise you. That's why we love to sing the Psalms. That's why we love to sing the old hymns. um, Because they praise you. But we want to be a praise to your glory as we go out of here today, too. We want to live so that people would wonder. We want to talk with our neighbors, with people we know, and let them wonder about us. Let them think about, well, what, what is it about you that, that you believe that your hope is fixed and you're not, you're not worried? Concerned, maybe, sure, but not worried because our hope is in Christ. Our Father, help us as we take the Lord's Supper today. Bring that, bring that hope to our minds and help it to be a reality as we go here from here today that we are Christ's and whatever happens to us happens to Him. And whatever we have is His and whatever He has is ours. And we thank You through Christ our Lord. Amen.